Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 74 of my sexy music podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. Hello, so first of all, I'd like to welcome all of you to part two of episode number 74 of my Sixty Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or on Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, or on Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? Well, I'm just going to give you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 23-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd, and uh, each week of this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the 60s and split the show into two parts. First part of the show, I talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics, and the second part of the show, I dig deep into the history behind that track. In that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who are the musicians in the track, whether that be the session musicians or the backup singers or the band members themselves. And and also talk about uh, what studio the song was recorded at and where that studio was located at, what label the song was released on, where that label was located at, and uh, the, the year and month the song was released and the peak position that made it up on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. All that is in the second part of the show. Moving on, let's talk about the history behind the ventures because i got to tell you something about this band. They were definitely an extremely interesting band, but to best explain to you what made them so incredibly interesting and unique and different from all the other artists and, uh, you know, artists and groups from that time, we have to talk about what was going on in popular music at the time that this band became popular to best understand their uniqueness now they really stood out from everybody else at the time and how they really were essentially ahead of their time, you know, as a group. But anyways, um so to get to really get a good understanding of this particular band, let's take a look back at the year nineteen sixty. Now, for this podcast, I haven't really uh talked about on the very, very beginning of the sixties, uh like the first year, because um, honestly, it's because a lot of the songs in the very first half of the 60s, like the very first year, weren't necessarily, I mean, some of them were pretty good, but some of them were not, you know, some of them were kind of corny, schmaltzy. But anyways, um, you know, this is the first ever artist and group that I'm doing from the very first year of the 60s, which was obviously 1960. Okay, so... Um, for the very first year of the 60s, to give you guys a little a good bit of idea of exactly what was going on in popular music at this time, um, in 1960, rock and roll was at a turning point. Many of the artists that were well-known in the late 50s that created that this ruckus music that was so dirty and grungy and just totally against many older people's morals at the time, and a lot of these people included Gene Vincent, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, Little Richard, Jerry Lewis, Eddie Cochran, I mean, just Fats Domino. Um, a lot of these artists by 1960 were no longer on the charts anymore. I mean, some of them were, but for the most part, um, you know, these artists were definitely not on the charts anymore. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that three of the three of those iconic 
uh, 50s rock and roll artists all perished in a plane crash in the very beginning of 1959. And that signaled a huge chain of events that would forever change the face of rock and roll history. And a couple other things happened after that. Um, Chuck Berry got arrested for transporting a minor outside of state lines. Elvis got drafted into the army. Jerry Lee Lewis got shunned by the American public for marrying his 14-year-old cousin. And Little Richard, uh, you know, dropped out of, you know, secular commercial music because he almost died in a plane crash. So, you know, he he turned into doing, like, more more Christian music instead of just rock and roll, which a lot of people thought at the time was still the devil's music. Um, and while all this was going on, record label executives were all of a sudden on a mission to clean up the dirty, bad reputation that was brought up, uh, brought upon the rise of rock and roll. And they wanted to groom pretty teen guys who had a good voice and were not threatening looking enough to where parents of teenage girls at the time would, ha- would have been cool with these good looking teen guys taking their daughters out on a date or becoming their boyfriend. Now, a lot of these guys weren't a lot of them weren't really talented enough to write their own songs and a lot of times they had a whole team of people backing them up like you know writing all the songs and producing and the songs and you know musicians playing backing them up too in the studio and on tour but anyways um these guys would sooner than later become uh called teen idols and they were all tall, dark, and handsome, and they all had really good voices because, let's face it, I mean, there was no autotune at this time, so you had to be a really good singer in order to go inside of a recording studio and record a record. You couldn't go inside a studio and not know how to sing, you know? And that when people wouldn't really grasp the idea of not, not a good singer, but good lyrics and good songwriting until Bob Dylan came around, but that wasn't until many, many, many years later. But anyways... um. They all had good voices, and like I said before, they had a whole team of writers and producers, you know, and musicians working for them, handling the music aspect of their career. And the, and you know, and while their talent agents and managers handled everything else as far as the business end of things. I mean, they were, these were the guys that got them gigs on Ed Sullivan Show and American Bandstand, and got them. They even got them like you know movie deals too, like where they would somewhat act but also sing in a lot of these movies. And uh, just to give you some examples of some of these teen idols, some of their names, some of them include Frankie Avalon, Fabian, Bobby Rydell, Bobby V. Um, You know, a lot of uh, those are those are some really good examples of some teen idols that were around at this time. A lot of them were Italian. A lot of them came from Philadelphia, but some of them came from other places, too. But anyways, also at this time, Elvis in 1960 just got back from being in the army. And he was having huge hits again after being drafted in 1958. But he also came back and quickly realized that there were other pretty-faced boys doing pop rock music, and he was no longer the only one doing it. I mean, there was Raul Donner, um, there was, uh, what's his name, the guy who was in, uh, Johnny Burnett, you know, who was the guy who, uh, you know, was uh, Dorsey Burnett's brother. And there was other guys you know, there was Adam Way, there's other guys, you know, who were pretty faces who were doing like similar kind of music that he was doing. Um, but anyways, um, another thing that dramatically changed rock and roll is that it seemed like all of the self-contained bands in the late 50s that were doing like instrumental music, such so as the Fireballs and the Bell Notes and Johnny and Hurricanes, were all of a sudden not having huge hits anymore. And doo-wop groups, you know, such as the Drifters and a couple of other groups and the Safaris and some other groups at the time were all of a sudden taking over 
And these were the groups that did not play their own instruments on their records, nor did they write their own songs. And of course, the teen idols like Bobby V and Bob Rydell and Fabian, and the R&B vocalists such as Brooke Benton and Jackie Wilson and Sam Cooke were all of a sudden having the most chart action at this time. And then at this time, the idea of a self-contained band that would play their own instruments on their records and went out and toured under their own name seemed foreign to most people at this time. But the reason why I mentioned that is that you got to keep in mind, in 1960, the Beatles and the Beach Boys were non-existent. I mean, yeah, the Beatles were starting to get their feet wet with, you know, performing, and the, but the Beach Boys wouldn't really become a band until like a year later, a year or two later, like in 1961 or 62. So really... In 1960, we are living in a time of teen idols and doo-wop groups and solo R&B vocalists, such as, like what I mentioned before, Sam Cooke and Jackie Wilson and Brooke Benton. And one would think that there wouldn't be any bands, like self-contained bands that played on their, play their, that accompanied themselves on their records and on tour, that would emerge from this time, and that would not happen until quite a few years later, with bands like the Beach Boys and, the, and of course, the Beatles. But... If you're thinking like this, you definitely have another thing coming. Okay, so now I'd like to introduce you to this band that was arguably one of the first totally self-contained bands to have a huge hit on the Hot 100 chart. And this group was known as The Ventures. Now, based off of the listening to the song last week, one one might think that based off of their surf rock kind of a sound, you know, I mean, they definitely had those, those Fender guitars and you know, the reverb coming out of their guitars, one might think that this band was from Southern California because obviously everyone thinks that the surf rock genre originated from there, and, and most of you aren't wrong about that. But in actuality, this band was nowhere near from Southern California. <laughs> in fact, they were actually from a city in the Pacific Northwest known as Tacoma, Washington, which is really close to Seattle. And... The original core members of the band were two guitar players and a bass player. Um, the two guitar players were Bob Bogle, who was a lead guitar player, and Don Wilson, who was the, who was the rhythm guitar player. And Noki Edwards was the guy who played bass. Now, the band was originally just a duo that formed in 1959, starting out with just Bob Bogle and Don Wilson. And the two initially met when Bob was looking to buy a used car from a dealership owned by Don Wilson's father. They both bought used guitars for $10, and I'm pretty sure that's 100 bucks now in 2019, but don't quote me on that, because I don't claim to be a money inflation expert, but you can easily look that up and verify with me on that. But anyways, they started performing as event Versatones, and they did a lot of private parties and bars and gigs in the Pacific Northwest as a duo under the name The Versatones. But when they found out that name was taken by another group, they had to get another name. So Don Wilson's mom suggested that they call themselves The Ventures, and they both said that they wanted to use that name in 1959. They both agreed upon doing that. After that, they recruited a bass player named Noki Edwards after seeing him play nightclubs around the Pacific Northwest. And when they got signed to a local Seattle label called Dalton Records, they went into a studio to record their first album at Joel Bull's Custom Recorders in Seattle, Washington. And before we go into any more specific behind-the-scenes details in the band as far as the recording session for Walk Down One, I should mention that they were assigned to the same label as another highly successful group that actually was the polar opposite of the Avengers. They were essentially a white pop group that glorified the essence of white pop 
in the late 50s that was the polar opposite of the black rhythm and blues and the beginnings of soul at that time. I mean, just to show you how progressive this band was, they were essentially label mates with a group that represented traditional values, being singers that didn't play their own instruments and had session musicians backing them up in the studio. Again, this was a vocal group, and they were known as the Fleetwoods. You know, and they had hits like Come Softly to Me and Mr. Blue and a couple of other songs. But anyways, whereas this group, The Venture, w- Ventures, was totally 100% self-contained. And they didn't really use session musicians on their records, a concept that at the time seemed new and unheard of until groups like the Beatles and Beach Boys all of a sudden introduced the whole world to that concept just a few years after the song came out. But definitely, these guys did it first. But anyways, well anyways, let's talk about the origins of this particular song, because a lot of you out there probably don't know this little tidbit about the song. But Walk Don't Run was not an instrumental surf rock song to begin with. It was actually a jazz guitar instrumental written and recorded first by a guitar player named Johnny Smith, in which I'm pretty sure Gibson made a signature guitar model after him. In fact, some of you out there, okay, I know you're probably thinking, Sam, what the hell? Are you serious? This song was a jazz guitar instrumental first and not like a like a surf rock song to begin with? You're, you're crazy, Sam. I don't believe you. Like, you're just... Like, literally, it sounds so hard to believe. Well, guess what? Just in case you don't believe that is true, I'm going to prove to you guys that what I'm saying is absolutely 100% true. And I'm going to show you guys exactly what this song sounded like before it got to the hands of the Ventures. Now, here is exactly what the song sounded like in its original jazz guitar instrumental form before the song got to become a surf rock song by the band The Ventures. Wow, you see, I told you I was telling the truth when I just said that the song originally started out as a jazz guitar instrumental. I mean, as you can see, I mean, you can tell just by hearing just a little bit of the original version of that song how completely 100% different the song originally was before it got to the hands of, um, you know, the Ventures. It sounded completely 100% different. And, uh, you know, it just, I, I couldn't, it, honestly, when I first heard the original version of the song, I was like, wow, I could barely recognize it. I mean, they literally turned this song upside down and made it sound completely polar opposite from the original version of the song. And uh, if you want, and now a, a question that's probably rolling around in your head right now, if you're listening to this episode of this podcast is, how the heck do they go from that so their version of Walk Don't Run. Well, I'm going to explain to you exactly how that happened right now. Okay, so if you're wondering if the Ventures version of the song contained an arrangement that was totally theirs and completely of their creation, you're only partially correct. After Johnny Smith released his version of Walk Don't Run, revered Nashville-based producer slash guitar player Chet Atkins decided to cover that song, but changed the key and make it more of his own. His version is more of a country chicken picking version of the song, and he put it out as a track off of an album called Hi-Fi and Focus. A member of the Ventures, um, who, by the way, his name is Bob Bogle, had a copy of that album LP, and that's how he they first heard the song. 
And before their first recording session for Dalton, they decided to record that song, but put a rock and roll drum beat to it and record it with straight, basically recorded straight versus swung. And by the way, all the other versions before the Ventures version were, were recorded swung. Now, if you don't know what this means, basically, um, instead of just it being straight like bum, 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 uh, you know, basically the other version before the bum, 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 they basically, they, there was a little bit more of a bounce in the original versions of the song, whereas uh, the, uh, the, the Ventures version was more straight. Um, you know, if you have any more questions about that, please let me know. But anyway, so, yeah, I mean, Chet Atkins' version was more of a country chicken picking of the song, but the thing to bear in mind about this is that um, the Ventures basically somewhat copied, uh, you know, Walk, Don't Run. They based it off of Chet Atkins' version of the song. They did not base off a Johnny Smith's version of the song. In fact, I don't even know if any of the original members heard Johnny Smith's version of Walk, Don't Run. I mean, that's not how they first heard the song. They first heard the song from listening to Chet Atkins' album High Fine Focus because Chet Atkins covered the song and, rec- and you know, Walk, Don't Run and recorded it for that album. And one of the original members of the Ventures, Bob Bogle, had a copy of that album. And that's how they first heard it. So... I mean, whether or not they heard the original version of a Johnny Smith, I don't know. But that's a that would be a really good question to ask Don Wilson, who is the only surviving original member of that band left. But anyways, the session for Walk Don't Run was financed by Don Wilson's mother, and it was cut at Joel Bow Studios in Seattle, Washington, on a two-track tape machine. And by the way, this is the same studio the Fleetwoods cut most of their hits at, including Come Softly to Me and Mr. Blue. And uh, basically, it was recorded on on two track with the bass and drums on one track and the lead rhythm guitar on the other. And everything was played and recorded live all the way through with no overdubs. And Bob Bogle played the song's lead melody through a Fender Jazzmaster plugged in through a Fender Dual Showman amp. And Tom played the rhythm guitar on the song and Noki Edwards played the bass. And also, one notable thing I wanted to mention to you guys about this record is that when the band originally recorded their version of Walk Don't Run, the band did not have a drummer, so they recorded a guy named Skip Moore to play drums on the song. But he really had no interest in joining the band as a full-time member. In fact, after the session was over, the band gave him two options as far as competition went for him for the session for the song. They offered him either a modest $25 session fee for playing on the song. I think their sessions were non-union as far as I know. Um, basically they said you can either take $25 from us for playing on the song or 25% of the publishing royalties for everything earned off of the song after it was released and it would become a hit or if it would become a hit. Skip, without hesitation, took the $25 session fee but later regretted it, regretted doing that as he unsuccessfully tried to sue the band after the song became a huge hit. Because he was like, all right, I'll just take the $25 session fee. I mean, you know, this this song's never going to become a hit. And then it becomes a hit. And then he's like, oh, shit, <laughs> what did I just do? <laughs> Man, I wish I didn't take the $25 and instead took the 25% of money off earned off of the song. Because now it's a huge hit. Now it's earning a ton of money. But yeah, that's basically what happened. Um, but anyways, he didn't. Ha- and by the way, he sued the band, but he didn't have any success in doing that. And also, I honestly don't think the Ventures were aware at the time that they were inventing a genre because surf rock was completely a non-existing genre in 1960, especially since this record was recorded nowhere near the Southern California coast. 
But the combination of Fender guitars and amps and a lot of reverb and clean guitar tones on their the, a lot of reverb on their on their guitars set the standard for surf rock for years and decades to come. And for the record, this song predated Dick Dale and the Safaris and the Shantays. You know, because Dick Dale's first big hit, uh, "Let's Go Trippin," came out I think a year after "Walk Don't Run." And the Safaris and the Shantays had their first two hits two two years after Walk Don't Run. Because both the records came out late nineteen sixty two, early nineteen sixty three. So they came so they came way later after the ventures. And also, this was one of the first rock records to have an electric bass player use a pick. And that was still pretty unheard of concept by nineteen sixty. I mean, you know, especially in pop music at this time, you know. You know, the upright bass was still king, absolutely, 100%. I mean, you listen to any other pop record from this year in 1960, nine times out of ten, there's an upright bass player, not an electric bass player. And when this song was released in the summer of 1960, it peaked at number two in the late summer, early fall of 1960, like August, like September. And at the time... They were the only self-contained band that played their own instruments and accompanied themselves on the record without any session musicians, you know, that went under their own name. They were the only group like that on the pop charts in 1960 when they had this hit. But anyways, um, to give you guys a little epilogue on what happened with the Ventures after the song came out and it was a hit. Because by the way, this was their first ever really big hit song. I think, in fact, in fact I think it was their first ever hit single actually. I mean, their first uh, single that they ever put out. Um, they had a few decent-sized follow-ups after Walk, Don't Run. And, and these songs include Perfidia and Rim, Buck, Shush. Um, you know, just a bunch of really cool, interesting instrumental songs. And by the way, Perfidia sounded a lot like Walk, Don't Run. It had a very it had a very similar sound to it, but it was a completely different song. In fact, I think it was like a traditional song, a traditional Spanish song that got redone by the Spam. But anyways... Um, I just want to put out a couple interesting tidbits for you guys about uh, this band. Um, interestingly enough, in 1964, in the wake of the British invasion, again, this was after, this is like a couple years later, like, you know, after the Beatles came into America, um, the band decided to re-record and remake Walk Don't Run. By the way, they're still signing Dalton Records, and they're still putting out albums signed while being on Dalton, with an organ to capitalize the organ-heavy British invasion bands that were extremely popular at the time. And the remake of Walk Don't Run, which was appropriately called Walk Don't Run 64, to let the listeners know that there is a new version of the song that came out in 1964. Again, this is like the new version of it, not the old version, but the new version. Act there, That remake of the song actually made the top 10 in Billboard, making them arguably the first ever band to have a top 10 hit record with two completely different versions of the same exact song. And the band also became one of the first groups to popularize Another guitar brand, also from Orange County, known as Mose Wright Guitars. And also, because b- I think what happened was that, like, th- during the 60s, the band purchased a Mose Wright guitar, and all of a sudden, since they were a huge band, you know, Mose, the Mose Wright brand was all of a sudden being shoved into people's faces, and, and Mose Wright caught wind of this and was like, wow, you guys are buying our guitars. And so, um, you know, the Ventures all of a sudden became huge fans of the Mose Wright guitar brand. And in fact, they've actually made 
custom guitars you know specifically for the band and i'm pretty sure that they've they've created models like venture models you know specifically for uh the band you know unlike what fender did but again like mose Wright loved the ventures because they bought a lot of their instruments and so because of that they've made custom guitars for the band and they've and the and they actually i think mose Wright also created like double neck like guitar bass um, instruments for the Ventures, which was really cool. And if you go look up a bunch of pictures of the Ventures back in the day, you'll see them playing these Mosrite guitars, which looked really cool. And also, after Walk Don't Run, the band found a semi-permanent drummer named Howie Johnson, who played on many of the band's hits before he left the band. After he got injured really badly in a car crash, he, you know, he decided he didn't want to play with the band anymore because the injury that he had in the car crash that he ha- that he had before joining the ventures was really was really making it difficult for him to play drums so he left the group and then he got permanently replaced by larry taylor's older brother mel taylor now again larry taylor was in can heat and he also played on a lot of monkeys hits and um you know also as the band progressed for a while they continued to release semi-hits in the dalton label but as other labels were starting to pick up steam in the wake of the British invasion and Dalton was starting to fall behind, the band packed up their bags and left Washington and moved to L.A. and switched over to Liberty Records. And the funny, they were la- the group that they were label mates with, um, the Fleetwoods did the exact same thing. They went from Dalton in Washington to Liberty in Los Angeles. And uh, it was then that, again, this is in the mid-60s, you know, 1965-66. So this is when psychedelic rock was coming out. The British invasion was hot. You know, like there was a lot of really good music coming out at this time. And, you know, and the, the reason why they didn't really have a whole lot of success at this time is because, you know, they did, they put out albums that sold really well, but really, you know, instrumental surf rock was kind of going under. And, uh, you know, then no, in the midst of all this, Noki Edwards left the band in 1967 and he got replaced by an LA session musician who was a guitar player named Jerry McGee. Jerry McGee played guitar on Last Train to Clarksville by the Monkees. He was one of the three guitar players on the session, along with Wayne Irwin and Lou Shelton. But anyways, um, you know, when they were on Dalton Liberty in 1965 and 1967, again, like, they sold a lot of really, their album sales were doing great. They were doing really well with selling albums. And a lot of the albums that they recorded at this time were, I don't think they were, were really, like, you know, good songwriters. So a lot of the the instrumental albums they're putting out this time mainly consisted of cover songs or instrumental versions of you know popular songs that were out at that time and a lot of these albums did really well but again since instrumental surf rock was kind of going under and becoming passe due to the advent of the beach boys who, who put essentially put words into surf rock you know a lot of the heavy and of course a lot of the heavy competition against other genres and bands of the time such as the four seasons and motown and of course the british invasion i mean the ventures really had a difficult time competing against all that you know in the mid-60s but anyways, but when they switched over to Liberty Records, they managed to have one more huge hit in late 1968, early 1969 that was produced by uh, Joe Saraceno and engineered by uh, Larry Linscott. That song ca- 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 catapulted them back into prominence in popular music again with their definitive and iconic single version of the, whole, of the, t- of the TV theme for the TV show Hawaii Five-0. 
Now, at the time, like, this was in 1968, so this is when the show literally just premiered, and it was a huge hit, and it was a highly, it was a brand new, highly successful show at the time, and it would run for many, many years after the song became a hit. But, and they actually recorded, like, they didn't, I don't think they recorded the theme song that was actually used on the TV show, but they did record a version of the theme song, and it became a huge hit in early 1969. But, this song, while still being an instrumental, is also completely different than their first big hit, Walk Don't Run. Because by this time, multi-tracking had become a thing, so the group was able to get a whole horn section and a string section to augment the rest of the band. And the track was probably done at Western Recorders in Los Angeles. And Larry Linscott actually engineered all the big Jandine hits. That most of them were done at Western Recorders in Los Angeles, which was on Sunset Boulevard. Now... Some of you out there listening to this episode might be wondering exactly why you won't really get the opportunity to see this band live um, and why they really haven't done a whole lot of shows in America um, within the last 40 to 50 years. Um, You know, well, to be honest with you, it's because over the years, this band did not have that major of a following in America. They were basically, but here's the thing, is that even though they weren't huge in America, a lot of people didn't really know who they were, in Japan, which is a whole other country besides America, they were basically the equivalent to the Beatles. These guys were huge in Japan. And, they, and because of that, you know, you know they, they, the, the version of this band that tours right now, you know, they play in Japan because people love them out there, people appreciate them, People in Japan are huge fans of the Ventures, you know. So I mean, you know, there. I mean, let me put it to you this way: when I think the Japanese sort of popular music sort of chart uh, database uh, decided to take a poll as to which band was better, better, the Ventures or the Beatles, the Ventures won over the Beatles. And I'm not even joking when I say that. I think Japanese people at the time loved the Ventures more than the Beatles. And I think over there, like they were, sell- they were playing to sell out, st- sold out stadiums and arenas, you know. So these guys were huge in Japan, but definitely not in America. Now, as far as who is alive from this group and who isn't, um, Don Wilson is the only surviving original member of this band. Uh, you know, Bob Bogle died, passed away quite a, quite some years ago. Noki Edwards died last year. And, and also, Howie Johnson and Mel Taylor also passed away. I'm not really sure about Skip Moore, but again, he only played on Walk and Run, so he wasn't a permanent member of the band. And uh, unfortunately, another member of the Ventures has passed away, um, actually, this week. Um, Jerry McGee, who w- was playing in the band since, like, 1968, um, what happened was that he collapsed on stage this week after having a heart attack, uh, he cl- he collapsed and he was sent to the hospital, and he this family put him on life support and he just passed away at the age of 80 years old. So, as of right now, there are no surviving original members of the Ventures still touring, and Don is alone surviving. Or Don Wilson is the only surviving original member of the band. And I got to be honest with you, I'm a little butthurt by this because I actually knew Jerry McGee. He used to come into this job that I used to have many, many years ago. Um, he was a super nice guy. I mean, he played on Last Train in Clarksville by the Monkees and just a ton of other really great um, records from the 60s. And, you know, I haven't seen him in years. And I just, you know, 
honestly, um, I know that he's he's probably doing a lot better now than he was on Earth. But I mean, you know, I just wanted to you know say that out here, and also I want to dedicate this episode um, to Jerry McGee. I hope you're doing well, man. Hope you're just rocking out in heaven. And you're playing the sold-out stadiums and arenas and just really just killing it with your excellent guitar work. I mean, he was one of the three guitar players in last year in Clarksville. I mean, he might have been one to play that iconic riff on the song, uh, although I'm not really sure about that. But anyway, so now him and his daughter are right... Uh, Don Wilson and his daughter are right now in the middle of producing a documentary about the band called Adventures and are currently raising money for it. I believe there's a there's a GoFundMe campaign uh, out right now where they're going to raise money for it. I can put that link to that GoFundMe campaign in the description of this episode of this podcast just in case you guys want to check it out. Um, the name of that movie is called Adventures Stars of Guitars. Now, hopefully it gets made, and hopefully I'll be able to see it, and once I see it, I'll let you guys know what I think of it. So that concludes part two of episode number 74 of Sexy Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you found out some really cool and interesting and mind-blowing facts and information about uh, this song, uh, Walk Don't Run, by listening to the second part of this two-part episode of this podcast and really, really getting to dig deep into the history behind this track, and you're listening and you, and you found out some facts and you're like, wow, that is unbelievable and just crazy. If you did that, please email me and let me know that. SamLTWilly iCloud.com or you can also follow me on Instagram at iHeartOldies and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net also um, here are some new catchphrases I'm going to start going to be introducing to this podcast um, every week uh, It's um, one of them is you'll learn something new every week at least I hope you guys are because I, un- I know that some of the listeners of my show on Spotify are a little bit older but I'm hoping that some of you on the other platforms that are around my age and are really learning a lot from listening to this podcast. And essentially, yeah, I mean, this this the whole podcast is basically old music for young people. That's what I want this podcast to be about. It's older music from 50 plus years ago, but it's, again, it's ex- it's ex- I'm explaining it and being excited about it, and it's really for young people around my age. So old music for young people is going to be a new catchphrase I'm going to be introducing this podcast pretty soon. And yeah, also, as per usual, with the, within the description of each episode of this podcast, here are things that are in there that you can check out. Um, one of them is brand new. The rest is, is, other, is stuff that's in other episodes, too, um, in the text description. Um, also, uh, the first thing is the official Spotify playlist for this podcast. There you can find all the songs I've talked about on my show so far, including some of the ones I've mentioned, mentioned in my interviews. Um, if you're on Spotify, please go follow that playlist. Um you know, the link to that is in the description of this episode of this podcast. And hopefully that will give you some ideas of some songs that I haven't covered in my podcast yet, but I should. And if that does, please, if, you, if it does give you any ideas for any new songs that should cover my podcast, yes, yeah, uh, please email me to me. Email those ideas to me at samltwilly at iCloud.com. Also, check out the official Redbubble merchandise store for this podcast there you'll find this really cool logo i designed well actually i didn't design it but i came up with the idea for logo and it's in keep on trucking tie-dye font and the name of podcast on the bottom and another brand new thing that is in the description of this episode of this podcast it's brand new i just did it this week um now for those of you out there who don't use spotify and uh want to listen to all the songs i have talked about my show so far including the ones in the interviews 
I now have a YouTube playlist for this podcast. There you will find um, all the songs I've talked about on my show so far, except it's on YouTube instead of on Spotify, just in case you don't have Spotify, but if you have, but you have YouTube. There you'll find all the songs I've talked about on the show so far, including the interviews. Please go check that out if you don't have Spotify and you want to listen to the songs I've talked about on the show so far. That'd be really cool. Um, I really appreciate that. I'll keep you guys updated on the the show that I'm producing. I have most of the band solidified and like six artists solidified, but I'll let you guys know um, once I you know have anything as far as a set list as one as that's finalized and everything. But yeah, so I'm Sam Williams and thank you for joining me and listening to, this ep- listening to me for this episode of this podcast. And also, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast on the Apple Podcast app, follow on Spotify. Please re- leave me a review in the Apple Podcast app. I really appreciate that. Um, more reviews again in the Apple Podcast app, the more my show gets pushed into the new noteworthy section iTunes. Also, leave me comments on the iHeartRadio page of this podcast as well. So, yeah, so I'm Sam Williams, and thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, police! Keep things moving. Really-